Hey there, welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast. I'm your host, Jeannie Oliver, and joining me today is Jennifer Chesick, the author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women. Jennifer is an award-winning freelance scientist and medical journalist, editor, and fact-checker, and her work has appeared in several national publications, including the Washington Post. Chesick earned her Master of Science in Journalism from Northwest University's Medill School of Journalism. She currently teaches in the Journalism and Publishing Programs at Belmont University, leads various workshops at the literary nonprofit The Porch, and serves as the managing editor for the literary magazine Shift. I'll add links for all the places that you can find her in the show notes, but you can check out her work at jenniferchesick.com or follow her on socials at Jen Chesick. It's spelled J-E-N-C-H-E-S-A-K. Today, we're talking about the use of psilocybin, which is a psychedelic plant medicine, and its potential benefits. And while psilocybin has potential benefits for everybody, both men and women alike, today we're going to dive into the specific ways in which it can be helpful for us women, including regulating our stress and trauma response, helping with depression and anxiety, facilitating healing and behavior change, and promoting hormone health in every stage of our lives. Psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy are still somewhat controversial, but they're a subject that I have been really curious about and wanting to cover for a long time, and I couldn't ask for a better expert to talk about it with. Jen's going to dispel some of the common myths and fears around psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, and she educates us on how it can be used safely and effectively. I learned a ton in this episode, and I hope that you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So now let's jump into my interview with Jen Chesick. Welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast for high-performing women who want to up-level their health and feel their best in their bodies, careers, and personal lives. In this podcast, I'll sift through the latest nutrition and biohacking trends to filter out the bullshit, share what you really need to know, and help you put the good stuff into practice in a way that works for you. You'll get actionable tips from guest experts and myself on how to up-level your mindset, workouts, relationships, and environment, and start feeling like the badass woman you are. Join me as we bust through the bro science and male-centric health paradigm to help you achieve optimal performance, body, mind, and soul. Welcome, Jennifer Chesick. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah. So I'm really excited about your book and just to dive into this. This is such a hot topic right now, and it's something I've been wanting to talk with an expert about for a long time and really take a deep dive into. So thank you for joining us. I'm really, really looking forward to this talk. Thank you. You've come to the right person. (laughs) Absolutely. So tell us a little about yourself and your background Tell us about the book and why you decided to write it. Sure. Yeah. So I am a science and medical journalist. I'm also a fact checker and I'm an adjunct instructor in the in journalism and publishing program. So I'm just constantly always writing and dappling in the written word. But I uh, really focused on health and science and wellness and things like that. And I have a really uh, strong passion for women's health, especially because I've had a lot of health problems in my life. And I've found that oftentimes when you when women enter the mainstream medical system, they get really frustrated. And I'll talk a little bit about that as we move through the podcast. But in terms of the actual book, so I've always really been fascinated by psychedelics as well. And then it seemed like a great opportunity to merge the two, women's health and psychedelics. And one of the reasons that this is so important to have a book just dedicated to the female body is that so 
more women in some cases are actually using psychedelics more frequently than men at, at some psychedelics. Mm. And this is, you know, a blanket statement pulled from a, a survey, the global drug survey of 2020. But I, that came as a surprise to me. I was a little surprised that more women are using some psychedelics more frequently than men. But when I dug a little deeper, this didn't surprise me. And this really like drove home the need for this book. But what what didn't surprise me is that there's a difference between the way men and women tend to use psychedelics. So men tend to use psychedelics a little bit more recreationally, whereas women are turning to psychedelics to self-treat. And again, this is an overgeneralization and not all men are using psychedelics just recreationally. And there's nothing wrong with using psychedelics recreationally. They're fun. But women are turning to psychedelics to self-treat for conditions like PTSD, trauma, anxiety, depression, chronic pain issues, other chronic health conditions. And these are the very same conditions that disproportionately affect the female body. And also when women go to the doctor's office, they're gaslit for some of these very conditions. So endometriosis is a classic example Mm. of the condition that I have. And I write about that in the book. But so it's been a problem, a longstanding problem. And but now that women are turning to psychedelics, they're looking for alternative treatments so that they can find relief for some of these issues. And that's why it's really important for them to have accurate information, safety information, any information that is very specific to the female body, which I think we're going to talk about hormones later and the menstrual cycle and all of that. Um, So wanted to dive into that. But one of the things I like to share with people when I first start talking about how women are treated in the medical system, I like to throw out this timeline. So women were largely excluded from early stage clinical trials until about the 1990s, early 1990s. And that Mm -hmm. has had some major ramifications. A lot of people don't realize this, but I give this timeline and it kind of gets people fired up. Um, So in 1998, men got a drug for male sexual dysfunction. And everyone knows what that drug is. It's Viagra. (laughs) right? Household name, right? And at that point in time, the medical community, let alone anybody that a a woman might have been sleeping with, didn't have an accurate picture of what the clitoris is. So there's all this internal structure. Do they now? They do now. (laughs) I I mean, some people, the medical community at least is starting to get the picture, but maybe not everyone. But that didn't happen until 2005 when a female urologist dug into the research on this and then determined all of this internal structure to the clitoris. And that's crazy. That was 2005. And then- is crazy. That blows my mind. Blows my mind too. And then get this, it wasn't until 2015 that women got a drug for female sexual dysfunction. That's a Mm. 17 year gap from when dudes got a drug to when women got a drug for the same condition, even though like sexual dysfunction affects the male and the female body differently, clearly, but because of different anatomy, but it's still a condition and it's the same condition in the the broad scope of it. And that's a 17 year gap. So the medical community has largely been treating the female body and the male body as the same in research. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is starting to change now but it it's still it's still an issue that women's health is often put on the back burner and so that is why i feel like it's so important that if women are turning to psychedelics to self-treat which there's nothing wrong with that as long as they're doing it safely then they need accurate information so that's what this book is really all about and all the context that might apply awesome (laughs) yeah and it's called the psilocybin handbook for women yes sorry i forgot to mention that (laughs) Well, I'll definitely put that in the intro for sure. But I just think it's, I think it's so brilliant. I think it's so exciting. Thank you for writing this because I've been really interested in brain health and metabolism and 
the work that I do and things like dementia and Alzheimer's. I mean, Alzheimer's, it affects twice as many women mm-hmm. as men. We now know that our brains function very differently than men's brains, that medications and all these things affect us so differently than they do men's brains. And so yet another reason why we should take a very specific gender focused look at this mm-hmm. in that context, because it isn't the same. We aren't just little men. We are not. A doctor, uh, no. <laughs> Dr. Lisa Moscone refers to it as bikini medicine. Yes. Yeah. You know, that anything that the bikini could cover, that that was considered what differentiated men from women and anything beyond that was like, well, it must just be the same thing. Right. And on that term I use in the book to point out Mm. that when the medical community does focus on women's health, like when they actually are researching it, they are focusing just on like the bikini aspect. And it's usually related to reproduction. And like women were not just put on this earth to reproduce, you know? So that's a big frustration (laughs) on my end. (laughs) Wild. So give us a little bit of the history of psilocybin. And I know that this could be a podcast in its own, but just a little brief overview of kind of the history of it. We know that psychedelics have been used by indigenous populations for centuries. So give us a little nutshell version of that. Of course. Yeah. So I actually don't know how long it's been used in indigenous communities. I think we're still actually learning that and digging into that. But yes, psilocybin has a storied history of being used in indigenous communities, indigenous ceremonies for different purposes. And this is so important in the context of what we're doing with psilocybin now, because, you know, everyone's focusing on the newer research on psilocybin, but we need to, whenever we are talking about psilocybin, we need to be bringing in indigenous wisdom because of that long history. We think of science as this process of doing things over and over again to reproduce the same results, but that's exactly what indigenous communities have done. I mean, yes, it's not in clinical trials in indigenous communities, but it's still still using a very scientific process in some regard. Mm -hmm. And so I did interview um, this wonderful woman. Her name is Michaela De La Maico. She goes by Mama De La Maico on Instagram, and she has studied psilocybin in the context of... of, um, indigenous practices and she's indigenous herself. And so she uses those practices to help women with various things. So I pulled her in as as an interview because um, I don't have that background and I just felt it was really important to get the right expert for that. But um, in, in terms of, I think it's also important to understand like how in the US, like the mainstream medical community even got to know psilocybin. And so That started when, so originally this guy named Robert Gordon Wasson, he's a JP Morgan and Chase um, executive. This was back in the 1950s. He went down to Mexico at some point and met a woman named Maria Sabina. Maria Sabina is an indigenous healer uh, or or curandero is the, the appropriate term. I don't know if healer matches quite up with that, but I'll go with it for now. Anyway, so she was she was using psilocybin in ceremonial practices, and he met up with her. And back then, the white man was not allowed to participate in these ceremonies. So mm. he lied to her, and he said, I need to do this so I can go and find my son who was missing. And that was not true mm. at all. Her, her, his son was not missing. and But he lied to her, and she finally let him join a ceremony with the condition that he not go and tell anyone where she lived or who she was by not not mention her name when he went back to Mm. the U.S. Well, of course, he totally violated that agreement and came back to the U.S. and wrote a big article in Life magazine naming her village, naming Mm. her. So this was a total violation of that trust that they had built. 
And then all of these people started flocking to her village. So like Walt Disney went there, John Lennon, um, a lot of other celebrities. And then, of course, just general the general population started flocking there. And it brought in a lot of uh, tourist issues to that community. And the community was not liking this because they were overrun with tourists and not a great way. And so mm. she ended up being ostracized from her village. Uh, her house mm. was burned down. I believe her son was murdered. I don't know the details of the murder or anything like that but but really it's not a great story it's a really really sad story uh and she eventually you know passed away but she lived in poverty for the rest of her life because of this man what he did and it's really harmful when we think about that so at that time then you know psychedelics were starting to be studied back then for mental health issues and other contexts. But then we had the war on drugs and that halted a bunch of research and now we're getting back to it. But it's so important to just remember that origin story because again, it's like a violation of women for sure. And then also indigenous communities. And so it's so important that when we talk about psilocybin that we bring that indigenous uh, culture into it. Yeah, I agree. And kudos to you for having for prioritizing that and having the awareness to do that. Because I think that hopefully by using this now, the knowledge in a way that does honor women and help people, it honors the memory of her and these pioneers and people who were using it first, who got there first. I think we're so arrogant in the West. We love to think that we're the ones that are innovating. Yeah. All these things, (laughs) right. Discovering things. And it's like, no dude. No dude. Yeah. <laughs> no dude. Right. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I think too, that there was that negative sort of stigma or just perception of psychedelics as like, you know, hippies doing LSD and just tripping and for recreation only. And again, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but I think that the war on drugs, that whole idea around that really stigmatized it. And I think it created a lot of fear. It did create a lot of fear. And there was a lot of misinformation put out there. There was this concept. It was really around, a lot of it was around MDMA or, you know, what we Mm. have called ecstasy and Molly over the years. But there was this idea that like everyone was doing Molly. We were all going to go crazy and insane. The world was going to essentially blow up because people were doing Molly all the time. And this just really wasn't happening. It was uh, a moral panic, essentially akin to like the satanic panic of the 1980s where everyone thought there were all these devil worship worshippers everywhere and that just wasn't true yeah. but then there you are all your these, tapes backwards yeah and... <laughs> exactly there are all of these other I remember messages. it well yes exactly same there's all this other misinformation out there too like you're going to yeah. lose your mind if you do psychedelics mm. you're going to jump out a window uh none of this is true that's just not how it works and a lot of this mm. perpetuated by film and television that inappropriately portrays what doing a psychedelic is like people see people having bad trips in film and movies and they're like oh gosh I don't want to be like that or that someone's just going to go crazy for doing this and it's just not it's just not the real case sure so when it comes down to that I mean I know that people do sometimes have bad trips they do um but what is the difference between like the reality that you're talking about and this sort of Hollywood version. Right. Worst case scenario. (laughs) Yeah. So people do have bad trips. And actually, I think the psychedelic community is trying to change the language around that rather than saying a bad trip. We want to say a challenging Mm. trip. And that can happen 
where, and it might not be the whole journey. Like you might have the, it starts out great. And then suddenly you get some anxiety or fear that crops up and you're having too many visuals and it's overwhelming, mm. but there are ways to be protective against that. And, and then that other thing I want to, sh- and I'll share some of those ways, but one thing I want to share too, is that it, you know, usually that if you do have a, a slightly bad experience, it's just like a temporary thing. It's it's just a section of a, of, a, of your journey or your trip that might be a little okay. bit like, oh, gosh, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. And I had an experience like that, but it was OK in the long run. And most people report, even if they have a challenging experience, this comes from survey results in medical studies that are in peer reviewed journals. They report that it's still one of the most profound experiences of their lives. And I can totally relate to that because my journey was in my trip experience was really good for the most part but I did have like a 10 minute time span in there where I was like I want to unsubscribe from this experience mm, and I don't yeah, want to be doing yeah. that you you're like stuck on the carnival ride and mm-hmm. but it was a good thing my mind was just showing me what I needed to know at that moment because that's how psychedelics work on okay, the brain and I know we're going to get into that but it was showing me what I needed to know and on the other other side of that 10 minute time span was immense peace and relief and I mean, the most peace and euphoria I've ever felt in my life was at that other side of Mm. that. And so I do call it one of the most profound experiences of my life. Now, that's not to say that people don't have really horrible trips and they can go really bad. Mm. um, But generally, you can do a lot of things to set yourself up for a good experience. Uh, And the context of that in the psychedelic community, we use the terms set and setting. So set is your mindset Mm. going into a psychedelic journey. And what I mean by that is like, are you super? stressed out? Or are you feeling like, okay, I can do this? Do you have you set aside enough time? Or do you have like some crazy deadline coming up that is the next day and you're worried about that? And you've got so many things going on in your life that you can't really take time to actually do a journey that's going to set you up, set yourself up for a very stressful experience. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then the set, the setting is literally like what's around your environment, what's around you, who's around you. And so some of that can be controlled by, you know, finding a safe space or a really calming space because some people react too much to external stimuli. So Mm. like for me, I would not want to be on shrooms at a festival. Other people are great doing that, but I know that personally that's not going to set myself up for a good experience. I need to be in a calm, contained space for the most part. So yeah, there are things like with set and setting practices that can really set you up for the best experience possible. And then the other thing in terms of mindset instead of setting like this intention of like, I need to work on this very specific thing, uh, which you can Mm -hmm. do, but a lot of people recommend setting an intention to just being open to the experience and to try to avoid the resistance. Cause we do have a tendency to resist things and that we can't control. And there will be elements of your journey that you can't control. And so you have to be just open to that experience. And the more open that you are and the less resistance that you put up, the better your journey will likely be. So just some mini tips. There's more on that in the book. Yeah, that's that I think is the part that's the most intimidating for me is the just the loss of control or the lack of control that you would have going through it. Uh, which brings me to my next question. <laughs> the difference between microdosing and macrodosing. Because for that very reason, I'm someone that I'm very open to the idea of microdosing because it's not this, you know, big thing that's happening or this kind of concentrated experience, if you will. So tell me the difference between microdosing and macrodosing and how people can kind of maybe determine which 
route is best for them. Yeah, I think a combination of the two are great, but macro dosing is, so micro and macro, if you just nail down those terms, micro means like a very mini tiny dose and macro means you're taking a larger dose. So I do list all the different doses in my book, but I also want to mention that there's something called a heroic dose. So I'll start with that Mm. because that's the biggest. So that's going to be something like over five grams. You're going to be extremely tripping. It's not recommended to do that for your first experience. So let's just set that aside for now. We're not going to, we're not going to do a heroic dose right this minute. (laughs) um, And I wouldn't recommend that as someone's first choice. Um, Then like what we think of like a classic macro dose is going to be, so heroic dose is five grams. And that classic macro dose will be somewhere between like two, 3.5, even up to four grams. Let's just say between two and four grams is a macro dose. And that is when you are going to have some of these classic experiences while tripping, like where you're going to see some visuals, some different things are going to be happening in your brain. And we can talk about that, but you need, you roughly need about, let's just say six hours to like get your Mm. peak dose and then come down from that dose. So you need time to do that. And you can't, you're not going to be able to be working and you don't want to be working. (laughs) Um, Whereas a micro dose is like a tenth of a gram. So compared mm-hmm. to like, well, let's say a, a macro dose at three grams, think of a m- micro dose as a tenth of a gram. And most people don't really, you don't have any visuals when you take that. You're not going to be seeing like shapes and geometric patterns or the furniture is not going to be breathing. That happened to me in my macro dose where the couch was breathing. And I was like, no, you're not supposed to breathe. (laughs) But but the micro dose, you're not going to have that. You can drive on a micro dose. You can go to work. And so people use micro dosing almost like um, taking a a pill. You know, you take a pill every Mm -hmm. day. Most of your medications you take every day. Most people don't micro dose every single day. There are protocols that you follow. And those, I list some of those protocols in the book. There's like the Fatiman protocol and the Stamet stack. And that involves taking a microdose for like certain days of the week and then taking off a few days. And then eventually you have like a washout week where you don't take anything at all. And that's just to prevent um, building up a tolerance essentially. Plus taking mm, a moment okay. to say, do yeah. I need to continue doing this? Mm. So microdosing is something that people do pretty regularly with in certain contexts, following certain patterns. And then macro dosing is something that you're not doing regularly because who has six hours on a Saturday to to trip (laughs) and prepare for that and like then come down from that and maybe have another day of rest after that. That's like an ordeal, Mm. you know, in a good way, (laughs) but who has time every weekend to do that? So you're typically doing more of a macro dose. Um, Like maybe you do it yearly, maybe you do it uh, twice a year or maybe once a quarter, you know, it's going to depend on the person. It doesn't have to be at a specific pattern. It's just not something that you're doing every day because we would not be functioning in life if we were doing that every day. So that's important to understand. So people use micro dosing more for having better focus during the day, feeling less anxiety, maybe managing symptoms of depression, things like that. And then people use macro dosing 
for as a deeper journey to gain insights, learn about themselves. And again, we can talk about all the brain science there. And I think that so macro dosing can actually be very lasting. And that's why you don't also need to do it very frequently. So if you're battling a mental health condition yeah. and you're trying to combat depression, a macro dose we're learning through research may last. I mean, you're not continually tripping, but the benefits right. last for um, like up to a year, maybe six months. Wow. It's going to depend on the person and what they're dealing with. But you don't need to macrodose regularly, but you may choose to microdose. And microdosing can really support your macro, like in between your macrodoses. Interesting. Yeah, that's okay. That's good to know. <laughs> I am always curious too, like if someone does the microdosing first, is it less likely that they'll have the more challenging experiences with the macro or not necessarily? I mean, does it come at it from a different... There's not really any literature or research on that in terms of like, if you microdose, do you have a better macrodose experience? Um, I I personally think people should do, uh, this is just my opinion. I love mm-hmm. the idea of somebody doing a macrodose and then using microdosing to support that experience. Yeah. So okay. there's yeah. another term and we'll get into this later, but there's another term in psychedelic, in the psychedelic community called integration. And so integration is really that process of learning from your experience with psilocybin. And so um, when you are, you know, after you've done your trip or your journey, you would, you could talk to a psychedelic assisted therapist who does integration Mm -hmm. work. There are integration circle, like communities out there. It's like group therapy, essentially just talking about your experience, or you can also just do that yourself. You can journal, which is what I did for my, most of my integration. And that was really beneficial to me as a writer. Um, But yeah, so integration is that process of learning from that experience. And so people then use uh, microdosing to tap back into some of their experiences. It's not that you're going to be tripping, but you might feel, you might think back to your, while you're microdosing, you might think back to your macrodose and then gain newer insights as you go along. So that's just a a way that I think microdosing can support that macrodose. Fascinating. That's cool. So one question that just came to mind too, rewinding a little bit to the discussion about indigenous use of this. I, I think it's really important too for people to understand the perspective of using this as medicine versus just a recreational drug, right? Yeah. I think that that can perpetuate that stigma we were talking about. And am I correct in saying that typically this was used medicinally? Yeah. Is used medicinally with you know with by indigenous people versus what we think of with like a party drug like <laughs> yeah right so like cer- certainly indigenous communities do um ceremony and i mm-hmm. suppose you could think of a ceremony as somewhat of a party or like a mini festival but <laughs> sure. it's, you know it's not like we're thinking about that classic guy yeah. going to a festival and being like i'm on mushrooms you know it's not like right. that it's very medicinal yes people do use in indigenous communities, they do use psychedelics medicinally, um, but there is a re- there can be a recreational component for um, like facilitating community and mm. connection within you know a tribe, things like that. So so it's a mix of okay, both. Yeah. But yes, definitely a m- m- major medicinal com- component. Cool. Thanks for clarifying yeah. that. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction. So tell us a little bit how psilocybin actually works and why it can be an effective tool for healing and specifically behavior change. 
Yeah. So I'll walk through a few different concepts. My favorite is, well, I have several favorites, but one that really helps people understand is the, it's called the Rebus model. And this was created by Dr. Robin Carhart Harris and Dr. Carl J. Friston. They're prolific uh, scientific researchers in the psychedelic space. I just like to give credit where credit is due. So people don't think yeah. I came up with it, but so <laughs> Rebus stands. And so what these researchers are essentially saying, they have a great analogy for it, but what they're essentially saying is that, so if you think back to childhood, childhood, our minds were super flexible in terms of we hadn't formed our identities yet or about we hadn't have formed our beliefs about how the world around us operates. That comes later in adulthood. I mean, of course, we start to develop our identities, especially in adolescence, and we learn about the world in adolescence. But by the time we're in adulthood, our minds are have become very rigid, which sounds weird, but childhood flexible, and then adulthood very rigid. And that's simply because those belief patterns about ourselves become very solidified and locked in place, and they're hard to change. And then same thing with how the world around us operates, it just kind of gets locked in. And so this is where sometimes depression can crop up, eating disorders can crop up. And of course, this can happen in the teenage years as well. But it's just as we grow older, we get that rigidity. And so the analogy that I love is we can think about our minds when we're in a normal state of consciousness as being super rigid, almost like a frozen pond. So if you think of your mind, it's just like ice, right? Now, if you were going to try to take um, a new belief, let's say you're trying to change um, a, a thought pattern or just a belief about yourself. Maybe you have social anxiety and you're trying to change this idea that you're not good in social settings. If you were to think of that belief uh, as a rock, and you try to drop it on that frozen pond, it doesn't gain entry. It just goes thunk and nothing happens. Maybe it cracks the ice a little right. bit, but that's it. Now, when you're on a psychedelic, this is where the relaxed beliefs under psychedelics comes in. Then we have almost like a thawed pond. So now you have water. Now you take that rock in the form of a new belief or the, the new belief in the form of a rock is what I'm trying to say. You drop it in and it, create, it get, gains entry and it creates this ripple effect. And so now you've gotten a new belief into your mind and it's going, it's likely to stick when you're on the psychedelic. And so why does this happen? Well, in a normal state of consciousness, we have almost like this hierarchy of beliefs. And so if you think about like a corporate structure, we can think of our beliefs as like this corporation and you've got your CEOs at the top and they're very bossy and domineering. And then they don't listen to any like employee that's like lower on the ladder, right? They're like, oh, those people don't matter. And so we can think of those as like those beliefs that we really want to, we want to add them to our mind, but our brains will not let us because we've got these domineering CEOs. Now, when we're on a psychedelic, that hierarchy just sort of goes away. And so mm. that the employees, the beliefs on the lower end of the ladder, they, they get a chance to sort of climb up that ladder and make, make changes in your mind about about certain things. So again, going back to this idea of like, if you had social anxiety, or we're trying to change that, that whatever beliefs are kind of rooting you in that, it's really hard to do in a normal state of consciousness. But with that relaxed beliefs under psychedelics, it's much easier to change when you're on a psychedelic. So this is really why psychedelics work, especially for mm -hmm changing, making behavior change, but also we have this increased level of neuroplasticity after using a psychedelic. And so um, neuroplasticity, if I were to try to explain that, I just say it's like your brain is sort of blooming and flowering. We're growing new dendri dendrites and synapses. 
And so we can really lean into making behavior change and implementing behavior change after using a psychedelic. So if you use psilocybin and you are your one of your goals is maybe I want to quit drinking or I want to drink less, this is a great time to start implementing that behavior change. It's not going to happen just automatically because you did psilocybin. You need right. to yeah. lean into, you know, now make some of those behavior changes of like, okay, I'm going to try to just have three drinks a week instead of 10 or whatever it is, like just making up a number. But you may find that you don't even want to reach for that, the drink anymore. It just, but you have to do some of that work as well. The other concept I want to bring up is called, it's called the helioscope effect. And so what this means is that, so this researcher, his name is Dr. Gregor Hassler, and he's at Freiburg University. I think that's in Germany, but he came up with this concept called the helioscope effect to explain why, when we go on a psychedelic, are we able to reprocess trauma and deal with trauma a little bit better? So the issue is that in, in normal states of consciousness, our trauma is really triggering. We avoid thinking about it. We don't want to think about traumatic events because they trigger us and make us feel really uncomfortable. Our heart rate rises and we just get like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. Um, But when you're on a psychedelic, we have what's called this helioscope effect. And a helioscope is in science is an instrument with that scientists use to look at the sun because you don't want to be looking at the sun, you know, directly. (laughs) Pro tip there. (laughs) But um, because you'll get burned, right? But the same concept applies to our trauma. We don't want to look at our trauma in a normal state of consciousness all the time because it does freak us out. But when you are on a psychedelic, it's like you have this helioscope instrument. It allows you to see your trauma from a safe distance and through a new lens without mm-hmm. getting burned, essentially. And uh, and then it gives you this new filter to reprocess your trauma that you wouldn't have access to in a normal state of consciousness. So that can be really highly beneficial for people dealing with trauma is that beautiful helioscope effect. Now, of course, um, I do want to correlate this back to our discussion about bad or challenging trips, because initially when your mind is so the you know, when you take a psychedelic, especially like with psilocybin, it's going to do it's going to work on your brain on the things that are in your brain already. So it's not giving you new ideas, unless you're like trying to add a new idea to your mind, of course, but it's working on things that you need to work on, because our subconscious knows what's up in there, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. hey, you need to work on this, right? So that's what's happening when you take a psychedelic, the mushroom is going to take you where you need to go the most. But that can feel uncomfortable at first, just because like, our normal resistance in everyday life would be like, oh, if someone's going to talk about a sexual assault and that's triggering for you, then you're like, nope, nope. But um, on a psychedelic, you, um, you, again, may have that anxiety first come up, but if you sit with it and avoid that resistance, you'll be able to hopefully view that trauma from that safe, new lens, you know, so I, I just love the helioscope effect because it just makes so much sense. It's fascinating. And it reminds me, you know, I, I talked with Nicole Field, she came on and talked about somatic stress release work. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how the body stores everything. People may be familiar with that book, The Body Keeps the Score. I mean, we know now that our experiences are stored on a physiological level. So is that part of what's working here is that these things that are sort of stored in our minds or bodies somewhere are now coming to the surface. 
Yeah, I think one of the things to remember is that if you've had, and I'll talk about this later too, if you've had adverse childhood experiences or what the scientific community calls ACEs, so these are anything that could have happened to you in childhood, like uh, abuse, neglect, living through extreme poverty, systemic racism in your community, having a violent household, parents who were very volatile, a parent who was incarcerated, severe childhood illness, losing a parent, you know, they somebody died in your family. These are adverse childhood experiences and it, they're very traumatic. And they cause, they actually cause changes in our body to our actual stress response. So we have the, uh, you know, our fight or flight system. It messes with that fight or flight system and changes how we use cortisol, how we're using glucose, insulin, all of these things. It permanently changes that. And so, yes, that is, those traumas are stored in your body to a certain degree. And when we use psilocybin, if we're doing this in a very therapeutic context, trying to work on stress or trauma or depression or anxiety, it's almost like it can reset that or it can help reset that stress response to a certain degree so that it can maybe calm that fight or flight system down a bit because it's so hyperactive in people who've experienced trauma. And to put this into context, one in six adults has experienced four or more adverse childhood experiences. So that's an alarming amount of trauma that just the world is carrying around. And so a lot of us are walking around with an act highly uh, more activated stress response and yeah. it it's harmful it's all, it's harmful to our it's nobody's fault it's just it's harmful to our metabolic health um so it can change the way that we again process insulin and glucose which can lead to obesity it can lead to heart disease high cholesterol all of these factors that yeah are related to our metabolic health. And then we're going to talk about menopause later too. But the another thing just to think about in terms of with the female body, when we have had four or more ACEs, that is likely to give us worsened menopause symptoms. So things like oh, hot lashes, it. and it's yeah. because it's all tied to that metabolic health. So mm-hmm. trauma has a very lasting effect on our lives. And it does seem like psilocybin helps with that. We've got new research that has just come out this fall that shows that psilocybin does reduce that psychological response to our adverse childhood experiences. So I'm planning to write about that for an article at some point, but I just wanted to bring that yeah. up because it's so important to think about what, how can we work with our trauma? Yeah, that's amazing. And having done talk therapy for years, like it's great to get things off your chest and have someone to talk to, but it really wasn't until I started seeing a therapist who uses somatic modalities that I felt like, okay, through this work, It's not erasing memories of bad things that happened, but they just don't carry that emotional charge anymore. They don't have that power over me anymore. So I think that that's a really cool thing to dive into (laughs) from any, with any modality, it can be really important because that's what kind of enables you to move forward and grow and change, be it behavior change or just be free of the emotional burden that those things can put on us, right? Yes, absolutely. um, Yeah. And I really want to dive into the metabolic health piece of this because that's something that I'm always yammering on about. (laughs) My listeners and my clients get sick of it, but I'm always saying, look, if you're in a constant state of that, you know, activated sympathetic nervous system, fight or fight response, like your body doesn't want to burn fat. Your body's going to conserve real efficiently. Like your stress hormones are going to be elevated all the time. Like your cells don't understand the difference between constant chronic stress and 
continually running from a predator or continually being in a famine state. Right. Yeah. When we have um, a stress response, like let's say that you're driving in your car and you almost get into like a fender bender, Mm -hmm. right? You have that. Everyone knows that surge of adrenaline that you get from that moment. And there are many other things to think about. And of course, that surge of adrenaline is there um, historically to protect us. So back Mm -hmm. in the day of caveman days, (laughs) there were men running from tigers or whatever. I don't know what predators were all out there then, but they were there. (laughs) And so you needed that surge of adrenaline to power your body. And people don't understand what that is actually doing. When you get that cortisol release and the norepinephrine, it drives glucose into your bloodstream so that you have the energy to run from the threat, right? In our normal states, we in everyday life, we aren't under threat running from predators generally. I mean, maybe sometimes, but it's there for you to have a good reaction in that near fender bender. But if we're constantly in that heightened state of stress and yeah. and feeling like we're under threat, which many people who've experienced trauma constantly yeah. feel that, like it's hypervigilance. Yeah. We're hyper aware that we're like, oh, we, we're under threat at any moment. That's constantly happening. You're just getting this constant yeah. glucose dump into your bloodstream. And yeah. it, you know, then that affects insulin release and and then that can lead to obesity and other things with metabolic health too. Sorry to take it on a metabolic health tangent, but I'm also very passionate about metabolic health. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I am too. And I think that it's so crucial because again, twice as many women will be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease as men. We now know, I mean, they're calling Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes. We know that there's a direct link now between glucose dysregulation and insulin resistance and brain health. And it starts Mm -hmm. in middle age, not old age. Yeah. You know, so Mm -hmm. most of my listeners out there are going to be in their thirties and up. I mean, this is the time to start paying attention to these things and doing this work. And it, Yes, nutrition and exercise matter. But I think that the emotional work is even more of a foundational piece than that. I think that it's, and not everyone's going to be comfortable doing, you know, using psychedelics, but whether that's one route for you or not, there are plenty of other options out there. And I think that it's just such a crucial piece because that stress response, especially if it's an ongoing thing in your body, it's going to affect your health. Yes. Yeah. In the long term. Every possible way. Yes. Absolutely. And to your point, you were talking about dementia being more prevalent in women, and it really starts to happen as we get into perimenopause and menopause with that estrogen drop that puts us at risk for dementia processes. It changes our the way our body handles glucose and insulin. So it just this the compounding factor is going through that menopause time. It's not that the menopause is bad, it's just a natural part of life, but we do need to be much yeah. more vigilant about our metabolic health as we get into that era of our lives because of all the risk factors that crop up because of the decline in estrogen including heart disease. One one thing, I'll take yeah. it on just this mini tangent, but I think, you know, heart disease is a problem for women, but the medic, like people don't really know about that. I would say that in general, people think of like heart attacks and stroke is happening to men more often, but it is happening to women. It's happening to women in middle age. And so if you've got a heart condition or if you've got anything that's cropping up as a heart symptom, definitely talk to your doctor about it and be persistent about it because women are dying of heart attacks. They are having strokes and we are more at risk. And the common thing that happens is if you go in and you say, oh, I'm having heart palpitations, what is your doctor going to say? Oh, you have Mm -hmm. anxiety. And that may not be the case. It may just be that you are having an arrhythmia or something and it needs to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to bring that up. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I'm glad that you brought it up. That actually happened to me a couple of years ago. I was having full blown, like, and, and we've only known recently how differently symptoms present in women for heart attacks they do in men. You know, we're used to hearing about the chest pain, the left arm tingling, numbness. That is very typical for men, whereas women, they might feel flu symptoms, might feel, you know, like nausea or sudden fatigue, all of these things. And yeah, I had that happen to me a couple of years ago. It was not a heart attack, but thankfully I had a functional medicine female doctor who knew what to look for. And I had to go through a ridiculous battery of tests, but yeah, there were some irregularities yes. going on there. And it was really lucky that we figured it out. <laughs> if we did alone, there could have been a real, a Absolutely. real problem. Yeah. I'm so um, sorry. Oh, thanks. You know, it's, I, I'm great for now because it, it was a wake up call for me and I was under way too much. Um, not necessarily because, oh my God, my life right now is so stressful, but like you say, my nervous system was just sort of stuck in this mm -hmm. state. It can happen. And I couldn't really shift into that parasympathetic place of, you know, what we call rest and yeah. digest, where I could truly relax and turn off truly like my body and brain did not feel fully of safe course, to do that. Yeah. And so it was a real, it really rattled me and kind of said, like, <laughs> you might practice what you preach when it comes to fitness and nutrition, but when it comes to your mental well-being and your emotional health, something's mm -hmm. got to give. It's got to shift. And I really, we have to prioritize that. And that is something that in all the work that I do with my clients, I'm constantly reiterating. Like, look, I can give you the best tools in the world. I can give you the best diet, the best workout plan. You might do it to a T. But if your emotional, you know, emotional, spiritual, mental health is suffering or you're in this you know, chronic stress, guess what? <laughs> You're still going to struggle a lot. Right. It's still going to affect you. Of course. It's so important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you had mentioned to me too, we were talking about, because obviously, you know, behavior change is a big piece of look, if, you know, we're coming into perimenopause or middle age and we're needing to make changes to our lifestyle behaviors, um, maybe we are having to address, excuse me, addictive behaviors, be it alcohol, sugar, you know, whatever that might be. For some people, it's exercise. Right, that's exercising. true. Um, yeah, but you had mentioned to me that there are actual clinical trials that talk about how psilocybin can help with addictive behavior. Yeah, so that. there are a few clinical trials out there going right now. Um, and one is for alcohol use disorder. And there are actually probably several clinical trials related to alcohol use disorder. Others are for opioid use disorder. And there's even there were even studying mm -hmm. psilocybin for um, smoking cessation. So obviously smoking is highly addicting and uh, has damaging health effects. But what people don't realize is that the um, the female body is different than the, I mean, in general, the female body is different than the male body. But when it comes to smoking cessation, for example, we have, women have different nicotine receptors, like our nicotine receptors are different than in the male body. Mm. And if you think about all the smoking cessation products, um, you know, uh, nicotine gum or patches, they all work on the nicotine receptors. And typically, I mean, yes, they can work for women, but it's, it makes it still harder for women to quit because of the difference in the nicotine receptors. And a lot of those products don't work adequately for women. So I'm really excited yeah, that psilocybin yeah. is being studied for that. But all that, um, the addiction, I would say the, the literature surrounding addictive behaviors and psilocybin, like how can that help? 
kind of goes back to that rebus model. Why am I, why am I addicted to the substance? Why am I doing this? Is it, is it a behavior thing that I can change? And, you know, by incorporating new belief systems into your mind, can you make those changes? So certainly related to that, but there's also a lot that happens in our brain during, um, you know, using psilocybin, especially in a therapeutic setting that works on different brain net we have in our, in our mind or in our brains, there's something called a default mode network. And that is a network of brain regions that work together to form like our sense of self. It's concerned with our like memories, anything, you know, if you're thinking about the past or the future, your mind's kind of wandering, it's very active. It also involves our empathy, including empathy for ourselves, but also empathy for others. So it's just really important brain network. And so there's a lot happening with that network when you're on psilocybin that can be beneficial for addiction. Um, it's, mm. it's interesting. And I like to explain. So um, again, this is a brain network of brain regions that work together. But when you're on psilocybin, um, it changes what's connected and what's not connected. So it's like, Things that are normally connected in the default mode network will disconnect and then things that are normally not connected will Mm. connect. So I I liken it to like thinking about you've got an outlet in your house and we've all got one outlet when you like take all the cords out and then plug them back into different outlets. I like to think of it that way. That's what's happening. And so there's a lot of stuff that could be going on with addictive behaviors that could be changed on the other side of it. Now, of course, your brain goes back to normal connectivity once you're off of psilocybin. I don't want people to be freaked out that your brain's going to be all scrambled or something. Sure. But it, it, it does have these yeah. beneficial effects in terms of Again, um, dealing with some of that rigidity that we have in a normal state of consciousness, getting new beliefs in there, and then working on patterns that are really no longer serving you. So, you know, if I'm sitting here drinking three glasses of wine a night, that's not healthy for me. And it's not really serving me well. I know I want to change it, but it's hard to change. And so I think that some of that, that relaxed beliefs under psychedelics takes effect for these addictive behaviors, but people are finding in clinical trials that it reduces their um, heavy drinking, the number of heavy drinking days that they have. Um, like I'm a, I'm, I'm a classic example. I did um, a macro dose over a year ago and I've dramatically cut back on drinking. Like, you know, I would probably be having one or two glasses a night of wine. And now like, I'll go like a week without touching it or, you know, many days without touching it. It's just not something I'm reaching to constantly but i've done work on that you know i focused on like my drinking what it, what am i doing that for you know sure. yeah. this isn't great for my liver you know <laughs> so i've really been yeah. or your hormones or your brain <laughs> yeah well it's not great for anything but um you know yeah I, I, i'm not against wine and it's great but um yeah, same. it it is something that i think women tend to turn to quite a bit especially in middle age when we're struggling with so many different things we've got yeah. our careers we've got you know, there are people that have, I don't have kids myself, but other people do. And um, so there's kids, there's careers. And and then something that I'm dealing with too in my life right now is caring for aging parents. And that's really yes. stressful. And if oh you've got gosh. all things going on at once. Yeah, so many lot. of us are at that stage. It's a lot. It's a lot. And so we're, we're classically going to be reaching for things that numb us out. And that might be ultra processed foods. If, um, you know, cigarettes, it might online shopping, you know, it could be anything that you're using to sort of numb yourself. But there's so much science coming out now and research that psilocybin can help with some making some of these behavior changes. You know, we didn't talk about this previously, but I'm really curious. So as someone who was 
recently, like less than a year ago, diagnosed with ADHD. And I know it's often, it's more often diagnosed in women once they reach perimenopause because the hormonal changes and the drops in estrogen things can exacerbate the symptoms. Um, For me, I had many of the symptoms my whole life. I just didn't realize that that was going on. But I'm curious, can psilocybin help at all with that aspect of it? And maybe you want to table that till we get into the menopause section of the talk today, but I'm so curious. No, I'm happy to talk about ADHD and then we can get to menopause later. Um, But yeah, so with ADHD, a lot of people are using microdosing to help with that because microdosing is a lot of ADHD medics out there are a stimulant, right? And Mm -hmm. so microdosing, um, psilocybin, it does have a stimulant effect. And so it can help with focus, like cutting out all the noise. Um, And the other thing that, um, so I have a whole chapter on this. There's a woman that I interviewed who had, she has severe ADHD. And so she said she's not necessarily using microdosing as like a tool for that, but she's done macro doses to help with Mm. ADHD. And one of the things that she mentioned that was just, I felt like this was really profound was if you've you've struggled with ADHD all your life, or I mean, just really point in time, um, it can be a little traumatic because um, the world expects you to operate in like a quote unquote normal way. You're supposed to be organized. You're supposed to, you know, have a schedule or do this and do that. It's a lot of things to keep of and do. And the ADHD brain just does not work that way. But the the world expects you to work that way. And so that can create a lot of trauma for the individual, especially children when they have ADHD and all the adults Mm -hmm. in their lives are like, you know, telling them that they're bad because they're not behaving properly or whatever is expected of them. And it's just not feasible for many people with ADHD to behave so the world expects them to behave. So she was using psilocybin to um, combat that or work on that trauma that resulted from childhood of, you know, where adults are just expecting her, teachers, parents expecting her to be a certain way. So I think that's a fascinating component. And I'm, I'm hoping researchers do do some more studying with ADHD for Sybin to see what are some results that might crop up. I love that because you, and am I correct? Is, is it less, I mean, when we're talking about any pharmaceutical, there are always downsides, right? So rather be able to use a plant <laughs> and, you know, avoid potential side effects that a drug or pharmaceutical may have for me. I mean, for example, like I use a stimulant ADHD medication as needed. So I only take it maybe twice a week. I have a really, really low dose that happens to work for me. And it, I, I had to go through a bunch more Cardi, cardio tests and things, um, cardiovascular testing, just to make sure that that was safe for me to take. I'd rather, I'd rather not have to take that. Um, and you know, if I can use something that doesn't have the potential side effects or isn't depleting my magnesium or all these things that this drug could do, I would much rather take that route. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Do we know about potential side effects or things that, that psilocybin could have? Yeah. So um, if you're macrodosing, I mean, either macrodosing or microdosing, it's important to know that psilocybin does um, elevate your heart rate and your blood pressure. So it's important that if you have any heart condition that you do talk to a medical professional to make sure that that would be something that would be safe for you to do. Um, And so so that's something to consider. And it, it, you know, it does have a bit of that stimulant effect. And so that's why it might be effective for some people. It's going to be different per person and the level of their, their experience with ADHD. 
it's it's very individualized. But um, but I, those are the two side effects to to consider in the you know short term when you're actually on the the drug. And then in the long term, it's important to know that. Um, uh, some research is coming out to say that psilocybin, if we're dosing super regularly, like, con- you know, pretty constantly, that uh, it's possible that that could create an arrhythmia with your heart. And that has to do with the, mm. serotonin, the serotonin pathways that are that's happening when you're on psilocybin. So the, the current like safety protocol is certainly like, take breaks from microdosing, don't do it continuously. Plus, that would create a tolerance for you anyway, if you're doing that continuously, make sure you're taking breaks and just be aware of the issue. Because of course, we just talked about heart issues in women. And, um, you know, you don't want to exacerbate that uh, at at a time in your life when you're at risk for such a thing. So so again, you could potentially use um, psilocybin as a microdosing tool with ADHD, but you wouldn't it wouldn't be something you could do permanently, like every day, you know, you'd have to be taking careful breaks. That makes sense. And you talked a little bit too in our initial conversation about the timing of it. And because it does have that stimulant effect that it's probably better used earlier in the day so that it doesn't disrupt sleep. Yeah. So just to, to mention that again, like if you are planning to macro dose, you know, you do want to allow like six to eight hours of time there to, you know, get, you know, it takes a little effort to activate in your body, just like as mm-hmm. if you were taking any medication and then, you know, you're going to hit the peak and then you're going to time to come down from that. And it may affect your sleep that night. So like, if you're going to macro dose, I would recommend like setting aside a weekend and, you know, starting early on a Saturday, it's like, Hey, I'm going to take some mushrooms at nine o'clock in the morning. morning. But but if you have sleep, yeah, I would recommend that rather than doing it like at night. I mean, it's not to say that you can't do it at night, but you may have trouble sleeping. I know I did the first, I I did in the evening one time and it was, I did have trouble sleeping that night. Um, But the, the next time I did it, then I did it from in the morning. And, you know, by the time I went to bed, I had come down quite a bit and had a normal night of sleep. And same thing with microdosing. Um, researchers are starting to study this now, and we, we don't have all the results on that yet. But it likely is that like, if you were to microdose at night, you might have some trouble sleeping. So I would recommend that if you're microdosing to do it in the day rather than later, you know, it's similar to like the concept yeah. of if you were if you were to do like a crazy high intensity interval yeah. workout at 10pm, <laughs> and you wanted to go to bed at 11, you're going to be like, oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I can relate it to that a little bit. Yeah. Well, and I think it would help too. I mean, if it's helping with focus and things like this, like it's most useful during the day. Like I don't need help with that when I'm asleep. (laughs) Right. It's not going to be like cannabis where we, a lot of us use can't, myself included, use cannabis for like mellowing. So it's not like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Since you mentioned cannabis, I'd love to know just really briefly how psilocybin is different from other drugs out there. And for me, it's, more appealing. I don't know why. Maybe that's something that like, it just resonates with me a little bit more, but um, I am not drawn to CBD oil. I've had some really weird, um, you know, reactions to that. And so it it just doesn't draw me. I don't know. Um, But I'd love to know how this kind of acts a little bit differently on the brain in comparison to something like, you know, MDMA or, um, well, ayahuasca, like the other- yeah. Um, so there's, 
available. There's certainly LSD, so that's mm-hmm. acid. Then there's Iowa and there's um, MDMA, which is, you know, like I said, ecstasy or Molly. And, um, you know, think about it. Like, so obviously, I think a lot of people are drawn to psilocybin because it is natural yeah. substance, um, as opposed to something like acid or, 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 LS, or, or LSD or MDMA. And ayahuasca is natural as yeah. well, too. So people are on to natural things. Um, yeah. So there's some components of um, what happens in the brain are like also happening on MDMA or LSD or um, ayahuasca. You know, I can't, I'm not an expert on those. I can't really dig into all of the differences in the, and the similarities. Um, but I, I, you know, just want to point out that like, that that's like at LSD and MDMA are natural right. substances that doesn't approve of them I, I approve of all psychedelics I'm just saying sure. they're they're very different um in terms of cannabis um you know there's some similarities but I would say that uh the experience is is very different I would say what's similar in terms of like psilocybin and cannabis you know individually would be um, a lot of times with cannabis you have a little bit of euphoria and a lot of people on psilocybin will experience that euphoria as well and that's a really pleasant thing Um, you know some people on cannabis have uh, issues with anxiety like it can drive paranoia or increase anxiety um, and that can happen on psilocybin too um, usually being the the experience that anxiety can can mellow out you know but yeah it's just a very different um, I mean obviously they're all different substances but um, yeah I like them both I like cannabis and I like yeah. uh, cannabis has been very beneficial to me in a microdose um format. I mean, yes, I, I take enough where I do feel it, but um, I'm not taking it so that I'm like high out of my sure. mind or something. Not that high out of their mind, but I'm not using cannabis recreationally. Yeah. I mostly use it, um, you know, around 8 p.m. to just sort of like ease myself into sleep. And it really helps me sleep. But psilocybin would yeah. not help me yeah. sleep. That would not do good. That would not be yeah. good for that. Well, it seems to just from, you know, my understanding and from hearing you talk and please correct me, I could be completely wrong about this, but I feel like cannabis is almost more in that class of like, let's numb out a little bit <laughs> or chill out and numb out. Yeah, it can be. Psilocybin is more like lock in to what needs to be addressed here. Like it's a little more of um, of enlightenment maybe. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, I would think of it like if I'm I'm taking cannabis. I'm like, hey, I'm ready to like kind of chill yeah. out, just relax, and, you know, feel the numbness of my fingers and toes and things like that. Um, and then if I were to use psilocybin, it's like, hey, we're gonna buckle mm-hmm. down and get to work here, lady, and work on ourselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's why I'm more drawn to it because that's more of my natural state. <laughs> I get it. I mean, I'm like that too. I'm like, what are we gonna right, work yeah. on today? <laughs> <laughs> to do list. Oh yeah. man. Okay. So let's dive into um, the very female specific aspects of this. You know, I, I think a good example of how things can affect the female brain so drastically differently are like Ambien. Like we know now that like that affects women really differently. And initially there were like car accidents women were having and all these things. And people were like, oh, women are just bad drivers, whatever. And then they realized like, no, no, no. <laughs> the doses need to be like half of what we're recommending for men. Um, yes. And then that switched things, you know, a lot. Um, believe we can all avoid taking something like Ambien, but it's a good part different. They function differently. Um you know, and whether we are in size smaller than men or not, like we're just a different machine. Um, have you found that there are specific differences as far as, um, you know, how 
this works on the female brain versus the male, um, or at least how it influences the downstream effects. Sure. Yeah. So there's some research now that has come out that I'm really excited about to suggest that psilocybin does um, interact with the menstrual cycle. And so I'll dive into that. But so the thing to know to back up, because we didn't talk about this, is that psilocybin is a tryptamine alkaloid and it binds to your serotonin receptors and it mimics that it mimics serotonin. So it mimics that very important neurotransmitter. Serotonin is super important for our not only our mood, but our, it's also important for our digestion, yeah. our libido, different things. So psilocybin is activating those serotonin receptors. Um, so diving into that a little further, what we do know is that estrogen like, likely somehow affects the binding at the serotonin receptor site. And so we don't really know all the details on that yet. But what we do know is that it likely affects the menstrual cycle. And so dig into that a little bit more deeply. And it may matter where we are in our menstrual cycles mm -hmm. when we are, when we are um, macro dosing. And then in terms of micro dosing, I'll talk about that as well. Um, what, we, what we know is that, so our menstrual cycle well, I'll dig, I'll dig into this um, study that came out first, that, and then I'll dive, dive into the menstrual cycle. But um, some case studies that Johns Hopkins University has been doing at, at their psychedelic center, um, Dr. Natalie Gukasian and Dr. Sasha Kane and Ryan, they've been prolific in this, and I'm so excited about the research that they're doing, and I, I know they're going to continue to study this. But they did some case studies looking at how are psychedelics affecting the menstrual cycle potentially. And there are three things that kind of have cropped up. One is that, um, and, and they focused on psilocybin to a certain extent. So one is that it's possible that psilocybin may make your period come a little mm -hmm. early, um, earlier than expected. It may also re-regulate your menstrual cycle if you've had a time of irregularity. So, um, you know, a lot of conditions like premenstrual dysphoric disorder, polycystic yeah. ovary, ovary syndrome, and then endosis can disrupt the menstrual cycle quite a bit. And so you may, and so can stress. And so, you know, there, there might be a time where you've had an absence of a period or you've, your periods have just been really erratic. Well, it seems like psilocybin may be able to re-regulate the mm, menstrual cycle. Cool. The other thing is that it may bring back a menstrual cycle after a time of irregular of, of evidence. So I'm not talking about in menopause, sure. but in your reproductive years, there have been, you know, many conditions can cause an absence right. of a period or a lot of weight loss, all of that can cause that. And so that might bring your menstrual at a time of, of, of where it's been absent. So why would this occur? Um, and we need more research on those specific things, but the, the research is yeah. starting and I'm excited about that uh, because it may have a lot of ramifications for, I mean, and benefits, I should say, for um, these conditions that do interact with the menstrual cycle, plus maybe fertility, even we don't know, yeah. we just need to, need to study that more. But the menstrual cycle occurs called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So when we are um, dealing with our menstrual cycle, it, you know, we have the, the uh, follicular phase, then ovulation, then the luteal phase, and then you get your period. And the reason that happens is because the brain and the ovaries are communicating with each other. And when one hormone kicks off, it tells another hormone what to do and so forth. And this all occurs along this feedback loop of the menstrual cycle. And then we also have another axis in our bodies, and everyone has this. It's called the thalamic pituitary axis. And that is very concerned with our stress yeah. response. And, and so, you know, when we take psilocybin, we are activating that uh, the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary 
pituitary adrenal axis. But you can tell by their names that these axes overlap. So we've got the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. They're overlapping with the the HPG axis and the HPA axis. They overlap. And we know that, that one affects the other. We already know this from just living as women yeah. in our lives, we know if we're stressed out, that can impact periods. And when we get our periods, that can certainly make us more stressed, right? So that we know from, from our experiences, plus from scientific literature, that they overlap. So it's not a stretch to assume that one axis would affect the right. other, and likely they do. So how do you manage that with figuring out, did you, in your cycle, uh, do a, a deeper journey like a macrodose? So um, indigenous wisdom practices, you would not be allowed to engage in ceremony if you were on your period. And that's just part of their rules. And that's likely for men. And when I talk to indigenous wisdom expert, she also said that it's best um, to, if you're, if you're planning to do a macro dose, do that close relation mm, rather than when you get closer to your period. And that simply has to do with um, the energy that's available to us in our okay. bodies. And I'm talking about like, like the way that we metabolize glucose and insulin that changes as we get closer to our periods. And so if you are um, close to your period and trying to do a journey, um, a macrodose can feel very energy depleting Mm. for the body and just temporarily, but you know, you're already energy depleted as you're in that late luteal phase, getting closer to your period. And so another thing to consider is a lot of people fast before a dose. Um, And that might just be like the hours leading up to the macrodose, or it could be like maybe you're you're doing a a dietary change for several days and fasting may be a part of that leading up to it. You know, there are just different practices surrounding it. It's very hard to fast in that late luteal phase. Um, but during ovu- as we're closer to ovulation, we have much more energy available to our in our yeah. bodies. And this all makes sense from a scientific Absolutely. metabolic health. That insulin resistant yeah. in the luteal phase because our bodies are sending all the the um, glucose to the womb, right? And so um, it we just have more we're less insulin resistant. We have more energy in our bodies during that ovulation time. So that's the recommendation on macrodosing is to try not to do it too close to your period. And then in terms of microdosing, my indigenous wisdom expert recommended to, if you're thinking about microdosing to see how that affects your menstrual cycle, and many people are trying this for various conditions, um, that to do that for three months, like follow a specific protocol like the Fatiman program at STAT, follow that for three months, and track your symptoms. So like, you know, take a journal and mark down if you're having changes in your menstrual cycle. And that will kind of inform you um, three months later, if you want to switch a ma- switch up the protocol, if you want to stop completely, or if, it, if you've realized that it is working with you and you want to continue with it, it takes about three months to really see that menstrual cycle with microdosing. Yeah. So just to keep that in mind. Yeah, that's, that's great information. i Curious to see more of the research on that as well, too, because I know, you know, a lot of women are realizing at a certain point in their lives, like, hey, I don't want to be on birth control anymore, you know, whether or not they want to get pregnant. And they really re-regulate their natural cycle because they've been, you know, not having a real cycle for decades, potentially, right? And they want to kind of re-regulate that and sort of get to the point where they can get a baseline on what's happening with their hormones, uh, which you can't do when you're on any kind of, you know, birth control or hormonal treatment. Um, So absolutely a really interesting tool for that. 
I think so too. And yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Like I, um, I was, I had a blood clot and it was actually caught in my arm and it was actually caused by birth yeah. control. It's a, it's a rare uh, risk factor for having a blood clot. Yeah. And so after that, I was no longer allowed to be on mm-hmm. birth control at all, but birth control was helping me for a while with endomies and the perfect solution, but it was helping to us. And I was like, what am I going to do? Yeah. You know? And so, you know, I wondered if, um, that if I had, I had a hysterectomy eventually, but, um, which is not a cure for endometriosis. I'm not trying to say sure. that, but, um, but I, you know, leading up to that, I was really, really struggling mm. with so much pain after not being able to take birth control. And I'm wondering yeah. if I had had access to psilocybin then, if I, uh, or if I had known about it or known about the benefits of what that would have right. done. Right, man. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people could get more access to this and not have to go through that unnecessary suffering? And I think the clotting is a more common thing than we realize. I mean, you're one of probably, well, at least two women who I know, one of my close girlfriends had a deep vein thrombosis that traveled to her lung. You know, it, it was almost fatal. Oh, it was gosh, really, yeah. really scary. And um, this is just a personal trainer. I mean, extremely fit then. Um, and it was the birth control. Uh, I mean, that was the thing for me. Like I, I, I'm an exerciser. I love fitness and, um, I'm super healthy for the most part. And, uh, so when I, and I, I've never smoked in yeah. my life. And so when presented with that, it was, it was very, I was surprised. I was like, how could I possibly right? have a blood, blood clot? And actually doctors weren't sure at first either. They were like, what yeah. is going on <laughs> here? And so, yeah. And, and to your point, I do think it's more common than we yeah. think. Um, I ended up writing an article about this for Healthline about my personal experience and like the risk factors for that and everything. And I can't tell you how many messages I get per year from women who've had the same issue wow. crop up yeah. and they're, they're call, they're reaching out to me on like Facebook messenger or DMS and Instagram, which I'm totally open to, but they're asking me for medical advice and a doctor and it's because of adequate information from their doctors. And the the crazy thing too is that um, a lot. Sometimes people reach out to me initially just to sort of commiserate over this experience. But the other thing that I get from people is um, they message me and they're like, "Oh, you know," because immediately if you have a blood clot, they're going to blood thinner, yeah. right? Well, as women, we get periods, right? Depending on where you are in your age, you know. But if you get a period on a blood thinner, it is like, "Oh yeah. my God, am I hemorrhaging? Awful. Am I dying right now?" And so it, and they don't warn you about this. And there's research about it that, um, that it's like 75% of women who take a blood thinner will have a horrendous period. And it is like, it looks like you've been slaughtered in your bathroom. And so they reach out to me and they're like, am I hemorrhaging? Do I need to go to the hospital? And I nearly needed an iron infusion because of it. It was so bad. You know, and I need, I know I needed to be on that blood thinner, but no one about that. It's so common. It's so Mm -hmm. common. It's just unbelievable to me how the mainstream medical world understands about women's bodies and how all these things affect us. And I'm not not against the mainstream medical world. I love science and medicine. But we have a long way to go. Yeah, we have a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. So menopause or perimenopause, because that's another, I think, poorly understood (laughs) stage of life. And I think that we as women, mostly hear horror stories about this, right? We hear like, oh God, wait till you're in menopause. It's horrible. And you're going to be having hot sweats and um, hot flashes and night sweats. And you're not going to be able to sleep. Like, just wait. I had a woman say this to me like a matter of months ago. She's like, oh, just wait. 
And it's like, okay, well, first of all, not every woman has that experience. But second of all, I don't think that we have to come into this in this outward state of mind of, oh, there's nothing I can do. Um, I'm just a slave to my genetic predisposition, et cetera. Um, So I want to know more how this can be used as a tool or how it potentially, you know, can affect things in that perimenopausal and menopausal stage, because obviously our hormones are in a very different state post-menopause. This is after technically after your period has stopped completely for a full calendar year um, on that, but that's the generally recognized diagnosis. Um, And, you know, what looks different there? Because I know, like, for example, from a nutrition perspective, women can often do things like fasting more in a way that men can when they're postmenopausal. While it, whereas when they're still having cycles, it, it can look very different, and they need to go about it very differently because it, you know, it's a different situation. So, talk to us about yeah. in this kind of context because many of my listeners in that perimenopausal state of life. Um, and many of them are also postmenopausal. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is um, something I love talking about menopause because I'm actually in perimenopause right now. I actually don't know where I am in my menopause trajectory because I don't, I had a hysterectomy, so I don't have a period and it's like, yeah. am I in menopause? Am I not? What's going yeah. on? You know, but yeah, that time to that, to the, to actual menopause, when you've had an absence of a period for a year, um, that time leading up to that, which can last a decade is perimenopause. And that's when we tend to get some of these symptoms like hot flashes, um, potentially weight gain, depression can crop up even for people who've never had depression before, yeah. um, a change in libido, all of things can happen in perimenopause. And, you know, you made a really great point that we need to reframe the way that we, we talk about menopause and we think about it because yes, it's this, it can be, we can have a lot of symptoms crop up and and people look at it a lot of dread, but what if we reframed that as this concept of like, we're we're, we're making a transition in life. We're entering a new chapter. And what if it weren't this bad thing? We thought about it as something beautiful. And so my indigenous wisdom expert, she kind of brought that up and she, she said psilocybin or mushrooms themselves, mushrooms are, um, and you know, fungi out there are great like decomposers and they literally transition matter into something Mm. else. And that is also something that we can think about with our bodies is with menopause is that we are just, we're going through this beautiful metamorphosis perhaps. So that's one thing I wanted to share, but um, I do have some, some actuals that I think that psilocybin can help with. So one thing to consider is that when people enter enter perimenopause and if that depression, again, it doesn't happen for everyone, but it can happen, especially even for people who've never had it before, um, you'll go to your doctor and the first thing the doctor is going to do is prescribe you a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, mm-hmm. which is an antidepressant and commonly called an SSRI or an SNRI, which is selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. And so you might be put on one of those and there's nothing wrong with those drugs. I appreciate that they're out there. They've helped many, many people, including myself in the previous, in previous years, I'm no longer on them now, but, and I don't want anyone, I don't want to encourage anyone to go off of their medication if it's working for them. And if this is the right thing for you, but I do have, I do take issue with the medical community just to that automatically and slapping it on a woman in their in perimenopause because, um, SSRIs have side effects. And one of those side effects is low libido Mm -hmm. or it can be it doesn't happen to everyone but it can happen it also cause weight gain so now you're going into menopause you've got depression they give you the pill (laughs) 
um, the SSRI you're going to take every day and it's going to exacerbate right. symptoms, yeah. right? So I have, I do have a real problem with that. And um, what, what we know about SSRIs too is not only do they blunt your, well, they, they, well, they blunt your mood. It, that's how they work. And that's what the aim is. But not only do they blunt your lows, they also yeah. blunt your highs. So now you're going into perimenopause, you've got depression, and you're you're struggling with like just other things in, in midlife, like taking care of your parents, taking care of your doing your career. And now you can't even lean into all those joys right. as much. You know, again, yeah. I, I struggle sex life's with just giving women these SSRIs. Yeah. yeah. And so um, what we do know about uh, about psilocybin is that it does not blunt mood. So it activates your serotonin receptors, but it doesn't blunt the mood. Instead, what, what people are reporting through, and this is coming through in scientific research, is that it actually makes you more okay with your highs and lows. So you yeah. just exist with them in a normal way and you know, you're know you not blunting that mood. So I love that uh, as a potential. The other thing to consider is that with an SSRI, you have to take it every day for mm-hmm. it to work. And, I, I have variants where I've skipped a pill, you know, in the past. And then I was like, oh, gosh, mm, I feel like yeah. crap, you know, having mood swings or something like that. And so, again, no longer I'll have I've had that experience. And they're also very difficult to get off mm, of. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, I've you might that. take it for a while while you need it. And then it's it's really hard to taper off of them. I had a horrendous mm. time getting off of That's I was right. on. Yeah. And so, you know, again, like it's it's one of those things. It's like, um, again, I'm not against these medication people, but and there's another option. I would try that first, you know. Absolutely. And so, yeah. um, you know, going into the discussion about libido. So commonly, um, libido can can go down or sexual, I should say female sexual dysfunction can Mm -hmm. increase in that perimenopause time. And female sexual dysfunction can encompass so many things. It could be pain with intercourse. It could be low libido. It could be, um, you know, inability to orgasm. There are so many facets of that. But again, this can really crop up in Mm -hmm. perimenopause. And so um, I don't want to be people blunting their libido by taking an SSRI if they don't need to, if there's an alteration. So will women boost your sex life? This is something that I like to talk about. Um, So uh, it's not necessarily going to be this classic aphrodisiac, like we're sure. thinking of like something like it or oysters or whatever, <laughs> like that people say, it's not really like that. Um, but what it may do is it may boost your confidence. So if you go off and do a macrodose on your own, um, maybe you're not doing it with your partner, you go off and do that on your own, it may boost your like confidence mm. in the bedroom and really like voicing what you need yeah. from your partner, which is a possibility. Um, the other the other thing to consider is that there are some things that are protective against female sexual dysfunction. And those things are having a positive body image and having intimate partner communication. Yeah. And, and there's no guarantee that's going to fix everything but it, it can really help be protective against female sexual dysfunction. And we do know through clinical trials that psilocybin is being studied for eating disorders. There are yeah. like 11 types of eating disorders out there, we, but we think of one of the most classic is anorexia nervosa, and that's the one that it's being studied for the most right now. Really? I think yeah. also binge eating disorder. Um, but we are learning that it has ha- is having beneficial effects on these eating disorders, and that has to do with something that happens with um, angular gyrus in the brain and reducing some rigidity there. And so um, I do think psilocybin can help boost your body image. And then also, um, I mentioned intimate partner communication. There's a component of 
psilocybin that in the and the brain that we didn't quite get to, but um, I'll just briefly explain it here. There's this constant oceanic boundlessness, mm. and another con- which is this like really beautiful um, connectivity that you can experience. And to to explain that, I have to go back to the default mode now. There's another concept in psilocybin in psychedelics it's called ego death Mm. um and that's scary like am i going to completely (laughs) lose my sense of self and that can happen on a um heroic dose going over five grams but in most macro doses you're just going to have really beneficial effects of this what's called ego death and what i mean by that so if you remember the bald moat network is is involves your self and your ego um it's almost like some of that dissolves and um instead of being so focused on your self Mm. you feel this connection to the world around you it might be that you just feel um, some some connections to the people that you know and love, or you might connect, feel really connected to nature, you might feel connected to the whole dang universe, whatever it is. But that's this co- concept called oceanic boundlessness. And I experienced something so profound during my psilocybin journey. I'm just going to briefly explain it, but it was definitely an element of oceanic boundlessness. I felt like I was connected to threads of light to everyone that mm. I know and love. And if I, could, I could actually like feel the love coming towards me and the love that I was sending back almost like an electrical current, you know? And, you know, I was only, I was doing just a two gram dose profound because a lot of times we feel like we, we know we have a support can, uh, uh, you know, um, support system out there, our friends and family, right. and, and we yeah. know they love us and will support us, but to physically feel it mm. is so amazing and profound. And so I was experiencing that it was an element of oceanic boundlessness. And so I firmly believe that psilocybin can help facilitate that intimate partner communication. And again, that doesn't mean that you have to like you and your partner are going to like hang out in the bedroom and do right. and then get all <laughs> funky. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Um, you can go off and do that on your own and feel that increased connectivity without your partner doing anything. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly to me. So I, I don't necessarily have like female sexual dysfunction, but I, um, I, I went off and did, you know, my macro doses on my own with a guide. And then I came back and my husband hadn't done anything. He was like sitting on the porch the whole time. I'm sure, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I felt like I loved him like to infinity, you know, it was just like this exponential increase in the love that I have for him. And it wasn't that like we were having marital problems to begin with, or that I didn't love him. I do. But it was just this increase. And I was like, how did this happen? He didn't do anything different, you know? So I think that it can be really profound in that way as well. And then I wanted to get back to we had already covered talking about adverse childhood yeah. experiences. So again, one in six adults has had four or more adverse childhood experiences. And those adverse childhood experiences can exacerbate menopause mm. symptoms. We know this. And so, um, especially if you've had four or more. And so if, now that we're learning that psilocybin can help with adverse childhood experiences, help reduce that psychological response, I think that it can help with menopause symptoms as well by reducing that psychological response to our traumas that we've had in our lives. So that's so kind powerful. of the meta field that I like. To yeah, I love it. I love it. And I think thinking back too to the rebus that you mentioned, that relaxed beliefs mm-hmm. under psychedelics, I think that's huge too when we're talking about our libido and sex life, because I don't know a single woman who's like super stressed out and is like, yeah, let's like get it on. I mean, there's probably a few of us (laughs) that like, maybe that's our, you know, release. And so we're maybe more motivated in that direction when we're super stressed. Um, But I would say that's probably the minority of women. Like typically 
you know, if we're all up in our head and stressed out, like that doesn't feel sexy. <laughs> so, no, it, like, yeah, if you're super stressed, you're like, don't touch Yeah, me, so know? if I'm in a more of a, you know, parasympathetic nervous system state, like it's a lot more likely that we'll be motivated that way. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. well, that's really, really cool and really encouraging, I think, too. And, you know, I'm a big root cause person. It's not like we can always identify like one root cause. And that's, you know, if you can address that, it's the magic bullet and everything's fixed. It's usually so multifactorial, right? Multifaceted. Um, yeah. But really, I'm excited about this because I, I believe that, you know, in the way that I said before, it can be a little more of an enlightening option versus like a numbing out option. I think it gives us this opportunity to start to go in and, you know, address those adverse childhood experiences that we've had, address whatever, maybe they're limiting beliefs, different things that are going on that are holding us back. To me, that's the most exciting aspect of this is that you could really kind of dive yes. deeper to the conscious level, right? Because it's usually our subconscious mind that's the biggest roadblock I find when it comes to really making the changes in our lives that we need to make or taking the steps forward that we need to make to really bring all of our dreams and yeah. goals into fruition and become like the absolute best version of ourselves, right? Fulfill our potential, Absolutely. which we all want to do. We all want to do that. And I think that if we can kind of remove all the roadblocks that stand in the way of that, and this is one tool for doing that, man, it just opens mm -hmm. up so many possibilities by helping us kind of root out like, oh, what are these hidden things that are stopping me? I love the idea too, that you have to kind of, if you're going to do this in a macrodose manner, you have to create space for that, <laughs> space for yourself, mm -hmm. because it is like going and getting a treatment and you're going to feel, you know, maybe yeah. out the next day. Like you have to allow your body and your mind <laughs> to process this and then, do the integration work. And that's what I want to talk about next too, is um, you mentioned yeah. integration. So, you know, this isn't something that you're going to take and like magically everything's going to be fixed for you the next day. Right. <laughs> right. It's magic. But yeah. not magical. So yes, like all of these things do happen in your brain and then, you know, that can have very beneficial effects. And there are certainly instances where yes, people have used psilocybin and then they automatically change something about themselves or learn a new insight. That's, that's great, but that's what it typically works. You typically have to put in work yourself. And so, um, you know, after my macro dose, I was, you know, sitting there and journaling and writing, just kind of like rapid fire, writing down any thought I had about my journey and what did I learn? Um, and then over time, of course, I was writing the book and my first chapter explains my, is it's a storytelling about my personal experience. And so I rewrote that over and over again. I was really thinking about these insights. Mm. So I was naturally doing integration just by writing about yeah, my experience. Cool. So that's one way. But again, there's all these beautiful communities out there that do um, like integration circles and you can find them on Zoom or you can do them in person in your communities, depending on where you live and things like that. But, um, you know, those are really beneficial, too, because you are, are usually communicating with other people in the circle who've had similar experiences, yeah. meaning that they've done some type of psychedelic and they know some of these concepts like that feeling of oceanic boundlessness. Because if you start to explain, try to explain that to someone who's never felt it 
felt it or known what I, what you're talking about, I'm like, oh, I was connected by threads of light to everyone I know and love. They're going to think I'm crazy and woo, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, it's really beneficial to be taught things with other people who've done that or just are like-minded about these yeah. things so that they can um, help you. And they can help you learn insights that maybe didn't, that you didn't recognize. Mm. You just talk about your experience then they help help you with that. And there's some great communities I want to mention. There's Moms on Mushrooms. It's M-O. And that was created by Tracy T. And it's really just a community of moms who are, uh, you know, open about their mushroom use and they're sharing resources and talking to each other. There are educational components to it. There's integration circles. She's just doing a really great job of reducing stigma for um, parents who, who might be, yeah. you know, using magic mushrooms. And then also um, there's the Flourish Academy, which I think is great. And they are doing um, different educational components as well. I also recommend looking up April Pride. She has a couple of different programs that she, um, so she can do some some work with people who are uh, starting to microdose and just need to gain their footing. She has a great microdosing journal out there. Um, so there are a lot of people out there that are in this space that are trying to foster this community. So integration can be done that way. It can also be done with like an integration therapist. So there are there are certainly psychedelic assisted therapists out there who help who who work with people. Well, they're actually on the psilocybin, like they're, while you're macro dosing, you're with a psychiatrist or a psychologist. They're not interfering with your journey. They're just there to support you if you afterwards doing integration. Oh, yeah. But there are also therapists out there that just do integration. And so you don't necessarily have to do the, the um, psilocybin with, a, with a, a psychologist. You might just work with the therapist afterwards. Um, and then, you know, again, you can do a lot of that integration yourself, again, by writing or just thinking or meditating and really like remembering what came up for you. And the beauty of integration is that it's ongoing. It's not like you just do it for the next yeah. day. It's something that you just keep doing. Like I think about my macro doses all the time and what did I learn during them? And I continue to gain mm -hmm. new insights. I continue to make behavior changes for myself based on those insights. That's and, really cool. you know, it's been a, it's been a year since my big macro dose. And so I'm continuing to learn from that very, you know, one single experience and it's, it's beautiful, but again, um, it's not a magic bullet. Yeah. You do have to do that integration work and that helps you make some of those behavior changes. And of course you have to take initiative to make those behavior Absolutely. changes. So if you're trying to stop the online shopping you have to consciously think about that and consciously behavior changes but you're you might be in a better place to make after using fools yeah and that brings me to one concept that you know we've sort of touched on indirectly but that's motivation and how this yeah. shifts your motivation yeah. because like you said you know where i would have been maybe having a glass of wine or two every night like now it's like maybe i have them once a week if that like i mean that's a yeah. big shift in one's or your, just your level of motivation to make the changes. Um, and that's something that so many people struggle with. I think that there's a lot of uh, misconceptions, what motivation is, that we should always feel motivated and always feel like, you know, oh, you know, once I make these changes, like I'm always going to feel motivated to eat healthy and hit the gym. And it's like, that's just not reality. Um, but yeah, dive into that just briefly, because I know we're, we're getting short on time, but I think that this is a really important piece to touch on. Yeah, part of it is that, yeah, you may not feel motivated to make these changes all the time. But what what may be of benefit is I was so I was mentioning that psilocybin makes you feel more okay mm -hmm. with your highs and lows rather than the, yeah. sort of like blunting your mood. And um, so I think you end up feeling more okay with just your 
present life, mm-hmm. your present state of mind. And at times we're, we're, you know, constantly ruminating about the past or the future yeah. or whatever. And, you know, that leads us to want to numb exactly. out and say, whether that's grabbing the line, um, adding something to your online cart yeah. or, you know, whatever it is that is, that is getting, that is a roadblock for you. Um, but if you're okay with just your everyday existence, that makes you less to, to numb out. And, and when you're not doing the numbing out, you, you open up other doors yeah. and that you make the change too. And part of that is like, it gives you a boost in motivation, you know? So I'll just, I've, I've gotten into strength training lately mm-hmm. and I love it. And it's such a beneficial thing in perimenopause, oh, yes. like build that muscle yes. because it's really healthy, yes. but it's, it's not like I can't wait to hit the weights today, you know, <laughs> and I don't necessarily have yeah. that. I mean, I, I, I do love exercise to a certain point, but, um, but yeah, there are days where I'm like, oh, eh. but you know, I'm tracking, tracking my progress. Like, oh, I'm adding more bite. I'm adding more weights to my bicep curls and I yeah. get really excited. Plus I'm seeing progress in the yes. mirror and loving That's that. Good. And it's all, it's not necessarily like I'm trying to like reshape my body, but I love like seeing the muscle yeah. form and that can help motivate you too. So the more progress that you make yes. with something that increases your motivation. And when we're doing less numbing out, that makes us more available to access that motivation. I love that. Yeah. That's really powerful. It's so powerful. Um, because I think, yeah, it, it kind of is enabling more consistency, right? Mm-hmm. And the consistency gets results. Absolutely. <laughs> consistency yeah. is the goal. I love it. That's awesome. Um, so let's, you mentioned psychedelic assisted therapy. I know that this is not legal everywhere. So, um, and you know, I know you're not a legal expert, but just give me, give us a little right. overview. Um, if people are interested in getting started in this, like what do they do? Where do they go? How does it work? <laughs> yeah, of course. So fe- federally psilocybin is still illegal and it's a schedule one substance, meaning it's like considered up there with like heroin or whatever it's considered not to have any medical benefit you know which is so outdated and i know that the dea knows this and they i'm hoping that it will eventually get changed um likely what we'll see is that mdma will get uh approved by the fda for psychedelic assisted therapy in i would say sometime in the near future like sometime this year i would think and then after that like psilocybin will follow closely behind and that's simply because mdma we're further along with clinical trials related to mdma than we are with psilocybin we're in there's tons of clinical trials and and um phase three clinical trials in the works with some two but we're just not as far as we are with mdma but going into where where is it legal so um it's legal in certain context in, um, let's see, it would be Colorado and in um, Oregon state. So those are two states. And then we've got a couple of, we've got a few cities out there. So DC, there's, um, so there's decriminalization in DC, um, which is like police generally aren't prosecuting anyone with like a personal amount on them or, you know, personal usage. If you were like growing mass producing psilocybin, I'm sorry, sorry, but um, yeah copious amounts of shrooms in your dank closet (laughs) but um and then there's legalization or there's certain elements of legalization and decrimination in ann arbor michigan and then lots of states actually have legislation in the works there you know we're going to see it follow a similar pattern like we did with cannabis where we've had a few states that legalized it in certain contexts and now Almost uh, like most of over half of states have some type of legalization for cannabis. It's even yeah. more than that. But um, 
but so we're going to see a pattern like that happen, and then eventually, hopefully, psilocybin will be descheduled. Is what what I'm what I'm hoping to see. But in terms of like, okay, what if you don't live in one of these states? Does that mean it's totally off limits to you? Um, well, I want to encourage you to break any laws. So, right. but you do you. <laughs> and so I'm I, you to break know, laws I, on I this podcast. <laughs> well, no, yeah, I want you to be safe. I don't want you to go to jail yeah. or anything. Um, but you know, there are under, I will tell you, our underground guides out there that will help you. They will meet you where you need to go to do um, a psilocybin journey if that's something that you're looking to do. I myself hired an underground guide and um, and he was fabulous. And I, I give his name in the book. He was amazing. I trusted him fully and uh, and felt very safe with him. Um, he also brought his mom with him, which was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, she was my trip sitter and he was the guide and it was really yeah. great. Um, but I write about that fully in the book, so I won't dive into it too much. But, um, but yeah, there are options. Plus there are other countries that have um, decriminalization or some form of legalization that do retreats. Um, I will caution people that if you are going on any retreat or working with an underground guide or even an above ground therapist to do your research on person is there. Um, and, and then, you know, like reviews, um, stuff, because I do want to raise the issue that there are, there are problems with, um, with sexual assault mm-hmm. in the psychedelic industry, just as they yeah. are, there are problems with sexual assault in every yeah. industry, right? So it's not a surprise that it happens in the psychedelic industry too. And if anyone wants to know more about that, I do write about that extensively yeah, okay. in the book, yeah. but there's also a great podcast mm-hmm. out there. It's called Cover Story Power Trip. And this was put out by New York Magazine and one of the producers and hosts of the podcast. Her name is Dr. Lily K. Ross. And she talks about her own sexual assault in the psychedelic industry. And she interviews other people that this mm-hmm. has happened to. And I don't say this to scare right. people, but it is like any yeah. other industry. And then where sexual assault happens, plus when you are on a psychedelic, because of that rebus situation, Mm -hmm. you're extremely vulnerable and open to suggestibility. So you with people who honor consent. And again, I I dive extensively into how do you how do you honor that? How is that consent navigated? Or how should it be navigated? And what red flags to watch out for? There's a whole chapter on that. Great. And that leads me to my my last question. And the safety of the actual substance itself and, you know, growing conditions, et cetera. I mean, I know any kind of mushroom can uptake all kinds of things like metals and and such from the soil. So um, as far as people acquiring the actual, you know, psilocybin itself, what... uh, yeah, definitely some some good considerations. So there um, there are uh, testing kits that you can buy through um, an organization called Dance Safe. So I would recommend testing because you want to make sure that like if you're ordering um, you know psilocybin mushroom capsules because a lot of mm-hmm. people grind up the mushroom and put it in a capsule. You want to make sure you're not getting something that you yeah. don't want, like Ugh, fentanyl or something like yeah, that. Um, you know, I, I I don't know if that's really occurred, but you just want to test everything. Like Dance yeah. Safe is this great organization. They recommend testing all any substance that you take. Like um, in terms of like metals and things like that. So you know, certainly. Um, that is a, a concern just as it is in the cannabis industry. What I love about the cannabis industry is that, um, you know, if I'm looking at a product online at a dispense, you know, that I'm going to go and get at a dispensary or something, the certificate of analysis and nice. see what the heavy metals are, what, you know, the levels are of each um, cannabinoid that's in the cannabis, I can learn that. I hope that we get to a point where we have some of those certificate of analysis for, mm-hmm. um, for, 
mushrooms as well because that will help increase safety yeah. but that all comes with legalization right, right. because you know who's who's encouraging the random guy growing mushrooms in his yeah. closet to put out a third party <laughs> lab test yeah we're not there yet analysis, yeah. right so so yes you do have to be um careful about what you're getting and where you will find that like if in places where we've got legalization and they are being the that's being sold at dispensaries you can you can sometimes get that certificate of analysis oh, already cool. but it's just more so in places where we don't yeah. have legalization or decriminalization where you're not going to really find that um, but yeah because what i recommend okay. um for now in terms of like just just buying a test kit testing everything that you're taking whether that is mdma yeah. um, lsd cannabis whatever it is awesome and we'll put those resources in the show notes for you guys too so we'll link to all of that. So tell us where can people find you? Where can they get your book? The book is available anywhere books are sold. I always encourage people to support their local independent bookstore. That's my favorite. (laughs) But you can, you know, buy wherever you get your books. And then um, you can find me on, uh, I'm on, you know, all the social media channels. I'm at Jen Chesek. So that's the at symbol. And then J-E-N-C-H-E-S-A-K. Happy to have you follow me and uh, say hi. And feel free to DM me if you have questions after, you know, if you've read the book and you've got questions or you've heard the podcast and you've got questions, I'm always happy to answer dms as best as i that i can i can't necessarily give medical advice but right, you know ne- point you towards resources fantastic i love it and i'll put all of that in the show notes for you as well so you can find jen thank you thank you so much this has been really fascinating and super fun and i so appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us about this um and yeah i excited to continue reading your book because it's just like more interesting to me than any novel <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I really appreciate your work. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is so sweet. We'll have to have you back one of these days and we'll we'll do like a deeper dive on one of these smaller topics. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Topics. Yeah, I would love to. We could do like a whole thing on menopause. <laughs> menopause nutrition and muscle building and all that. So Yes. Yes. I love it. All right. Awesome. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Hey there, thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave me a quick review. Also check out the show notes for links to connect, follow and share this podcast and for information featured in each episode. See you next time. I am not a doctor and the content here should not be taken as medical advice. All information in this podcast is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of practitioner or coach client relationship. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you hear in this podcast or any other, and do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your health provider. Always seek the advice of a qualified health practitioner before undertaking a new health regimen. This podcast and website represents the opinion of Jeannie Oliver and guests to the show. Opinions of guests are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Genie Oliver Wellness LLC or our producers.